book of Judges for the last eight weeks or so. We've been working through a series that I'm calling Broken People and Faithful God. And in several of those sermons, including this one, it just, it's been pretty rough for the dads. It's been pretty rough for the, the fathers, the husbands. And so I thought we could start off with something that would at least kind of ease the, the tension a little bit. Because what we see throughout these passages is really the reality the seriousness of sin and the way that it affects us individually, as families, as churches, um, even as cities. Uh, sin is real. Um, this morning is going to be a specific place where we're going to see the, the sins of a father and how they pour into and lead to the sins of a son. Um, but it's ultimately going to lead us to a place of hope where we get to see that our ultimate hope, our only hope, is in our one true heavenly Father and in His Son. So this morning, we're going to be uh, walking through, if you have not opened your Bible yet, you can swing to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8 and 9. Like I said, this is our next to last week in surveying what goes on here in the book of Judges. If I can remind you from a couple weekends ago, we looked in uh, the, the life of Gideon. And we saw in his life a man who really lived in fear. Um, but God came into his life, renames him, identifies him as a mighty warrior. And through God's redemption of his life and of the entire nation of Israel, we see real change come about. Um, and we see uh, the pinnacle of that is actually um, this moment when Israel and Gideon, with 300 people, pull off what is, is maybe one of the greatest military victories of all time. Now, I wish that I could tell you coming out of that story of Gideon that that storyline continued, that Gideon continued to grow in trust of the Lord, continued to grow in grace and, and believing that God's promises were true. But what we're going to see over the course of Judges chapter 8 and 9 is that very much the opposite is what takes place, that Gideon forgets who God is forgets God's faithfulness, and really begins to put his, his attention and his focus towards his own name, his own glory, uh, his own power, and really trades the goodness of knowing God as a good and loving father to chase the idols of his city and of his culture, specifically these idols of sex, money, and power that we even as a culture today continue to wrestle with and will choose to lean into those rather than leaning into a good and loving father. So I want to give you just a highlight of what's taking place here. We're really going to cover all of Judges 8 and 9, but we're going to read this morning initially just from verses 22 through verses 33 of Judges chapter 8, just to give us a sense of what is going on in the life of Gideon and then ultimately of his son. The scripture says this, beginning in chapter 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it, the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. 
and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal Berit their God. Let's take a moment. Let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we have been reminded after every page of your scripture, Lord, that we are a sinful people who are desperately in need of the grace and the forgiveness that comes only from you. And Lord, as we take an eye to this culture, to the Israelites here in these passages, Lord, we can see ourselves, we can see our country, we can see our city in them, Lord. Much sin, many mistakes, much turning away from you. But God, that bad news is not the complete story of Scripture, be it Old Testament or New. The complete story is the good news that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinful people like us, sinful people like me. And so, Father, even as we read these Old Testament passages, would your goodness and your grace as a Father and the goodness of sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ... And the grace to send your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, Father, would it be evident? Would it jump off the page, Lord? And would you call our hearts back to you afresh this morning? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three applications for you this morning as we walk through Judges 8 and 9. The first is this. The testimony of a failed father calls us to follow our heavenly father. The testimony here of a failed father calls us to hope in and to follow our Heavenly Father. If we were to to kind of just get a quick snapshot of all that's happening here in chapter 8, after Gideon's amazing moment, we see Gideon begin to fail, begin to slide into a life of pride and slide into a life of self-glory and focus on himself. Um, At the beginning of chapter 8 here, he is basically mopping up what he has done a couple weeks ago. And so he is chasing, there are two kings of Midian that he is chasing to eliminate. And he runs into various troubles as he's trying to do that. So the first thing that happens is he has one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Ephraim, comes to him and basically stops him in his tracks and says, we're angry at you, Gideon. Why didn't you let us participate? Why didn't you let us be involved in this moment of conquering the enemy Midian? Now, to be clear, their desire was not actually to help. Their desire was not actually to support. Their desire, like Gideon's, was for glory. They wanted a piece of the glory. And so Gideon really responds to that interaction with a lot of flattery um, and a lot of false humility on his part. And then it leads to a second interaction. And this is two towns that are in his region, the towns of Sukkoth and Peniel, we see in the middle of chapter 8. And Gideon comes to these two towns basically and asks them, listen, can you guys provide bread for me and my 300 men as we are trying to move quickly and find these two kings and eliminate them? And both the towns basically say, take a hike. 
We're not interested in helping you. We want nothing to do with you. And Gideon's pride and Gideon's rage begins to become evident. And so he basically threatens both of them. He says to the town of Sakoth, I'm going to tear your flesh with thorns. And he says to the town of Peniel, do you see that tower in the middle of your town? When I come back here, I'm going to tear that tower down. So he makes these threats, and he's on his way. And we see already the character of Gideon beginning to disintegrate. With Ephraim, who is actually more powerful and more rich, he tries flattery. And with these two towns that he knows that he's more powerful than, he uses violence and threats to move his own cause forward. But what we should notice most of all, if we were to go line by line through chapter 8, is what is missing. There is now no conversation taking place between Gideon and God. No prayer. No words from God. No words from an angel. No words from a prophet because there's no desire on Gideon's part to hear from the Lord. Gideon shows us what a man who is only interested in his own glory looks like. He's also going to show us the devastation of being a man of violence. Uh, of being a man characterized by revenge. So eventually Gideon does catch up to these two enemy kings and he puts them to death. And so he then goes back to these two towns that he threatened. First he comes up to Sakoth and he wraps the elders of the town in briars and thorns and beats them. And then he goes to the town of Peniel and does exactly what he said he would do. He knocks down this tower and we're told that hundreds of people were inside the tower and were all killed his own people, he's beginning to teach and show and demonstrate who he really is. And in a really weird, not touching at all, father and son moment, he goes to one of his many sons, a son named Jether, and he says, I want you to do the deed. I want you to kill these two kings. Jether is afraid and says, I won't do it. And so Gideon pulls out the sword and kills these two kings in front of his son. So you see just the deterioration that continues to take place. But beneath it all, what we're seeing in the book of Judges is a man who is showing us what it looks like to dethrone God as king. Slowly but surely, God, who is king, in fact, even politically in Israel, they had in the Old Testament what was called a theocracy, which means God is the king. But you're going to see spiritually and practically that Gideon is sliding further and further away from this. A few generations later, we're going to see this in uh, fully demonstrated. Look at the book of 1 Samuel with me. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8. The scripture says this in verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, Israel has come to Samuel saying, we want a king. We don't want you, God. We want a king. And so God says to Samuel this, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing this to you. This is total rejection. In chapter 8, in fact, the Israelites will literally say, because you, Gideon, have saved us. Gideon and all of Israel has completely lost sight of the fact that it is God who saves. It was God who rescued them at every point throughout the Old Testament, and now they are looking to Gideon instead. 
But the slippery slope of dethroning God as king continues. First, Gideon actually says the right thing. He says, I will not rule over you. Not my son. The Lord will rule over you. But, and this is always how it begins, right? One little but. Let me ask you for one thing. Let me ask you for one favor. He says, I want each man to give me an earring from the plunder. This is actually a very kingly thing to do, isn't it? He's already now beginning to collect taxes towards his own wealth. It says, the scripture says that he collected 1,700 shekels worth of gold. In today's market, that would be just under a million dollars worth of gold that he has now collected. And the scripture says that Gideon then took the gold and made an ephod and put it in his hometown of Ophrah. Now, in case they were out of ephods this week when you guys went to Target, let me explain to you exactly what an ephod is. An ephod is essentially a vest, but it was a special vest, and it was a vest that was only worn by the high priest once a year when he would go into the Holy of Holies to perform acts of worship to the Lord. And so what Gideon has done is he's not only now begun to assume kingly roles, he's now also begun to assume priestly roles. And so he makes this ephod, covers it lavishly with gold and jewels of various types, but what's behind it is the same heart that is removing God as king in his own heart, and he's leading his culture to do the same. The Bible says that Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping this vest, this ephod. The Bible tells us throughout Scripture that worshiping God plus anything else is prostitution in our soul. So this is a new generation that has gone back to the exact same golden calf scenario that Moses experienced. Uh, The prophet Hosea, 600 years later, is going to say this, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. The sins of the father now begin to trickle down and become the sins of of the son. So Gideon, we're told in Scripture here, has 70 sons. This is also a very kingly and a very wicked thing to do. He is practicing here, obviously, polygamy, um, which was very, very common in their culture to take many, many wives, but absolutely was a sin, and Scripture never condones this. So Gideon here is actually demonstrating sexual perversion in two different ways because he's also then taking a concubine as a partner, and the result of that relationship is his son Abimelech. And Abimelech is now going to take center stage. Abimelech is son number 71. And if you're thinking, hmm, Abimelech, that's kind of a cool name. Might want to name my next child Abimelech. Just so you know, Abimelech means my dad is the king. So you continue to see where Gideon's heart is. He names his son, my dad is the king. So what do we learn here? What do we take away from this father who knew God personally, who walked with God, who saw God do miracles, and yet at the end of the day begins to try and replace God in his own life, in his family's life, and in his culture's life? I just want to offer you two quick applications as we think about the father role here. Uh, First of all this, followers of the father listen to his voice. Followers of the one true father, listen to his 
voice. Gideon stopped praying. Gideon stopped looking to the word of God. It seems like a small thing. It seems like a simple thing. It seems like not a big deal. But we see the ultimate results that took place in Gideon's life and in our own when we stop leaning on and listening to the voice of God. Psalm 73 is this powerful, powerful psalm where the psalmist Asaph is basically saying, my life makes no sense when I'm not listening to God. He describes how bitter and confused and frustrated he was until the moment, he says, when he entered the temple to worship God. And at the moment when he re-entered the presence of God, when he re-entered relationship with God, things began to change. And it's at that moment in the psalm when he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Followers of the Father listen to his voice. Second application, though, is this. Followers of the Father give God the glory for success. Followers of the Father give God the Father glory for their own success. See, Gideon here is clearly becoming addicted to his own success. Pastor J.D. Greer up in North Carolina says this, it's not the test of adversity that we usually fail, it's the test of prosperity. You get what he's driving at? Are we in some sense addicted to being in the spotlight? Are we addicted to the need to have the attention and the focus on ourselves? Are we focused on the glory of man or are we focused on the glory of God? Is it some professional or financial or even within your family, some level of success that has your heart that you must pursue that no matter what else it might cost? But I promise you the scripture is clear. The allure of these shiny things does not pay off. Amen? Are you using your position to advance the name of God or are you using God to advance the position of your name? I believe by God's grace, one of the things that he does that is most loving is gives us failure, is gives us strife. He gives us difficult circumstances to open our eyes to see that the things that we have been clinging to, if it, not is, if it is not him, it will not last. And through those moments of difficulty, and maybe you're facing one even this week, through those moments of difficulty, God reveals his faithfulness and his goodness and you see all the little things move to the side, and the goodness and the grace and the holiness and the trustworthiness of God comes to the forefront. So the bad news throughout Scripture, the bad news of the gospel is you can't do it on your own. You can't do anything on your own. But the good news of the gospel is that He can do it, and He can do it in you and through you. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Number two, the testimony of a failed son calls us to disciple others 
to follow our Heavenly Father. We switch from Gideon to his son Abimelech, and as we see his life fall apart, what I hope it does in your heart is gives you a fresh wind and fire to pour your life out into those that God has gifted you to be able to disciple, whether that be family, friend, somebody that you've specifically entered into a discipleship relationship with. Let's see what God has here for us. Look at Judges chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, or Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Remember, Abimelech got everything from his dad, including his name, which means my dad is the king. God has not called Gideon to be king. God has not called Abimelech to be king, but Abimelech is on the move now. And so he rallies his hometown of Shechem against his 70 brothers. And he requests 70 shekels of silver from the treasury of Baal, literal blood money, to pay for the murder of all of his brothers. And so the scripture says that 69 of his 70 brothers were murdered in one day with this blood money in the same place. Only one survivor left. He has a youngest brother whose name is Jotham. For whatever reason, scripture doesn't tell us, Jotham survives this, this murdering rampage. And Jotham comes to them and basically goes to the town of Shechem and, and shares with them a parable. The parable is this. He says, imagine trees. Imagine that there were trees and that all of the trees gathered together and asked the olive tree to be king. And the olive tree, because it was a good tree, said, no, I will not be king. And then imagine the, the, the trees asked the fig tree, will you be our king? And the fig tree also said, no, because the fig tree was a good tree. And then the trees go to the vine and they say, will you be our king? And the vine also said no because the vine was a good tree. And then imagine after all of the good trees had refused to be king, that the trees went to the thorn bush and the thorn bush said yes. The thorn bush is actually a weed and it was a weed that really was known for one thing. Thorn bushes tended to catch fire very easily. And when that happened, usually the fire on the thorn bush would catch all the other trees such that all the trees ultimately would burn to the ground. Jotham is speaking a word of reality to the people of Shechem. You have chosen the wrong man to be your leader and it will destroy you. So eventually God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem and the men of Shechem will start an uprising to destroy Abimelech. Abimelech catches wind of it, and the fight is on. And so Abimelech is fighting now with his own people in the town of Shechem. He destroys his own city, burns it to the ground, covers it, says Scripture, in salt, so that nothing would ever grow there again. And the citizens who have survived this flee to yet another tower, Baal's tower in Baal's temple. And like father like son. Abimelech burns the tower to the ground, and the scripture says that a thousand men and women were killed in the tower. He then goes to another city, the city of Thebes, and attacks it in the same way. The scripture says that while he was then trying to attack this next tower, that a woman grabs 
a millstone. You know what a millstone is? A millstone was the stone that you would use to grind wheat, connected back to the beginning of the story with Gideon and his relationship with wheat. This woman is up in the tower, grabs a millstone, sees Abimelech down on the ground below, and throws the millstone down and hits him on the head. Abimelech's last moments alive are not moments of repentance, are not moments of crying out to God for help, are not moments of admitting I should never have made this about myself. I've destroyed my own life, my family, and my city. His last moments alive, he literally goes to another guard and says, run me through with your sword because I don't want it said that a woman has killed me. And he dies. What do we do with that? We see sin on display. We see the sins of fathers leading to the sins of sons. I want to offer you again two applications to think about here. First is this. Followers of the Father teach their children to follow the one true Father. Followers of the Father teach their children to follow the one true Father. This is imperative. Um, This passage is for moms and dads. Who do you want your sons and your daughters to be? Who do you want them to follow? Who do you want to be king in their lives? But we also recognize here, not everybody has been called by God to be a husband or wife or to be a father or mother. This scripture speaks to everyone here because God has called everyone, young, old, new believer, seasoned believer, male, female, God has called all of us to be disciplers of other people meaning to teach other people how to know and follow and trust God themselves. Everybody is called to do that. And so I would ask all of us, who are the people that God has placed on your heart to disciple? Be that your literal son or daughter or someone in your family or someone in your circle of friends, someone that you work with, somebody that's a part of this church, who is it that God has called you to pour into? And what would be your desire to see them grow and trust in Christ themselves. See, our mission as a church here, as New City Church, is to glorify God by both being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, that we can turn the attention off of ourselves and point it to Jesus by personally being a disciple of Jesus. I never grow out of that need to follow Christ myself, but out of growing in my relationship with Christ comes the making of other disciples. Where does that begin? When we make disciples, it literally begins with that very first conversation that you have with somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet, and you get to share with them, unfold with them the good news of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it continues through seeing them come to know Jesus as Savior, and then walking with them through the Word, teaching them how to pray and make Jesus their King. And it doesn't end until that day that we both see Jesus face to face in heaven. That is the call here. Followers of the Father teach their children or their disciples to follow the Father. Think about Gideon and his father, Joash. If you remember, the issue with Joash, his dad, or Abimelech's grandfather, was not that he didn't teach his son Gideon how to follow God. It's that he taught Gideon specifically, you can follow God and false gods that you can have both, that you can worship the idols of sex and money and power and follow God. So what did Gideon then teach his sons? 
the same thing. That they could have God in their lives and chase the idols of sex, money, and power. And so he teaches his sons clearly how to use and abuse women. He teaches his sons that money and comfort comes first and God comes second, even if it means killing people to get there. He teaches them that power is more important and that your name is more important than God's name. There's nothing more important that you can do than show someone the face of God. Pew Research did a study uh, about five years ago, and they basically sought to determine in our country and in our culture what is the median age of every religious group in America, just to see where are the trends. And what they discovered um, is startling. First of all, we are a part of a denomination called the PCA. If you're new, that's an acrostic, which stands for Presbyterian Church in America. What they discovered about the PCA is that we are, in fact, the oldest median religious group in America. Our median age is 59. Does that mean there's something wrong with being old? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we don't value every generation? Absolutely not. It means that we are failing in handing off the gospel to the next generation. This is a crisis. But it is not just us and our particular piece of the mosaic of the body of Christ here in our world. Um, This same study revealed that the youngest six religious groups in America today So where are the young people going, in other words? Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, and, quote, nothing in particular are the largest groups among the youngest demographics of people. That is what is growing up within our own world because we have failed to hand off the good news of the gospel to our children and to those that we disciple. This is a terrifying reality. Do not look at Gideon. Do not look at Abimelech and go, man, I'm so glad we don't make those same mistakes today. The situations may change. The cultural sins and the cultural norms may change, but the crisis is the same and the call behind it is the same. Trust God who is good and take joy in being used by God as a part of his mission to see people grow in knowing Jesus Christ. This is our call, and it is truly a gift. And this is what I offer to you as as a second application, is there is joy in following God and showing others how to follow God. Even if you feel like you're the only one doing it, there is tremendous joy. There is nothing better in this life than following God and showing others how to follow God as well. In my own life, even just in the last couple weeks, I was just reflecting on where God has placed me and where he's allowed me to be for his glory. But some of the ways that God has filled me with joy, just grieving with people who are grieving over sin in their culture and in their situation, Um, counseling with people who are struggling with sin and being able to point them to the good news of Jesus, though I grieve when they hurt, I take joy because I know that I'm getting to show them the truth. I'm getting to show them a way out. I'm getting to point them to the hope that we have in the Father. This last weekend in Cuba was just an amazing time to see believers who are passionate about the gospel, and yet they live in a situation that is just overwhelmed with poverty. And much of of the many comforts that I take for granted, they don't seem to mind. And I see with them that, that same joy to be able to see the good news of the gospel go forward. 
there is a, a special kind of joy when I'm at the dinner table and I'm getting to, to read Bible stories to my kids. I want them to know who Jesus is. I want them to know the truth. And there's honestly not a better time during the week than those moments of getting to talk with them and pray with them and teach them and share the gospel in our household. Um, I've gotten to begin working with public school students in several of our schools here in the area. And though I'm not specifically able to share the gospel with them, I get to mentor them. And these are kids who in many situations are lacking family and they are hungry for family. And just being able to walk with them and mentor them has been such an incredible gift. It's a joy to be used by God to invest in others, ultimately to disciple them to the good news of Jesus. I was listening to a song this week. I was actually in the, um, the drop-off line. My son goes to Pineapple Cove, and I was dropping him off to school. And a song that I've heard before came on, but it hit me in a different way. It hit me in a fresh way, and it's probably one that you are familiar with. The band is uh, Sanctus Real, and the song is called Lead Me. So I'm listening to this song, and it just really hit me right where I'm sharing with you right now. And it hit me so much that as I got together with my guys in our discipleship group, I shared it with them again because it just was really affecting my heart and I love the song. Really, the first verse is talking about this father and this husband and how he wants to lead and invest in and pour the gospel into his wife. But he's coming from a place of brokenness, and he recognizes that he's failed over and over again. In the second verse, it's him talking about his desire to do that same thing with his children, that he wants his kids to know the gospel. But again, he's coming from a place of brokenness, and he recognizes that he's failed over and over again. But then there's the third verse. In the third verse, he basically says, God, I can't lead them if you don't lead me first. There's such power and encouragement in that. I just wanted to share with you the, the third verse, the lyrics here. He says, Father, give me the strength to be everything I'm called to be. Father, show me the way to lead them. Won't you lead me? To lead them with strong hands, to stand up when they can't. Don't want to leave them hungry for love, chasing things that I could give up. I'll show them I'm willing to fight and give them the best of my life so we can call this our home. Lead me, because I can't do this alone. Get what he's saying there? The gospel is such good news that when it pours into us, we have the gift and the joy to be able to pour it into other people. So what is this good news? Number three, and finally, I want to give you this. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God testifies that He is our only hope. You know, this story reminds us that the gospel is both bad news and good news, and the bad news is clearly on display that God's justice will come. The Bible says in chapter 9 of Judges that after three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and his people of Shechem in order that the crime of murdering Gideon's 70 sons might be dealt with, that there might be justice. It's a reminder, uh, don't let your fun with sin make you think that it's going to last. And don't let God's slowness in bringing that justice make you think that you are safe from sin. Second Peter chapter 3 says this, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Do not think I can keep living for me right now, and I'll give my life to the Lord later on. Jesus is coming back, and he comes to bring salvation and justice. See, because the problem is not just out there. We've said this many times. The problem is not just society at large. The problem is in here. The problem is my sin. The problem is my heart, because deep down, I'm a little Abimelech myself. Abimelech rejected God, and we reject God as the one true king and place ourselves as the king of the throne of our lives. There's only one true king, isn't there? There's only one true king. His name is Jesus. He's the son of the father. We need the true king, the true judge, the true father, the true son, and the true Holy Spirit. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this, Jesus, the son of God has come to earth. He has lived the perfect life, no sin of any kind, and then died on a cross for sins that he did not commit. And the gift of the gospel is an incredible exchange. Jesus is saying, I will take your sin upon myself on that cross. I will pay for your sins, your guilt. And in exchange, I'll give you my perfect life, my righteousness, and all that you have to do to receive it is ask. And God is faithful, and he always answers that request with yes. You know, Gideon wanted power for himself. Jesus rejected power when Satan offered it at the temptation. Gideon was all about himself, but Jesus gave his life to save us. Gideon took people's treasures to make a vest of gold. Jesus poured out his blood that we might be saved and clothed in his perfect righteousness. Abimelech collected blood money from Baal's temple to murder his brothers, but Jesus was murdered when Judas took blood money from the Pharisees. Abimelech deserved to die when he was killed by a millstone, but Jesus didn't deserve to die. Jesus took the millstone of our sin and the judgment that we deserved upon himself so that we might be saved. God sacrificed his one and only son so that we might have life and life eternal. So would you this morning afresh ask God, Lord, will you be my good father? I trust your son as my savior, and I make your Holy Spirit the king of my life. I want to do it your way because I know that in your way is true joy. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together.